beware. Just Chills is a symphony of fear designed to send chills down your spine. It is not for the faint of heart. I'm Tasha, and in this episode, I read the classic horror story, August Heat, by W.F. Harvey. Turn down the lights, and let the nightmare begin. Peniston Road, Clapham, August 20th, 1900. I have had what I believe to be the most remarkable day in my life. And while the events are still fresh in my mind, I wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible. Let me say at the outset that my name is James Clarence Withencroft. I'm 40 years old, in perfect health, never having known a day's illness. By profession, I am an artist, not a very successful one but I earn enough money by my black and white work to satisfy my necessary wants. My only dear relative, a sister, died five years ago, so that I am independent. I breakfasted this morning at nine, and after glancing through the morning paper, I lighted my pipe and proceeded to let my mind wander in the hope that I might chance upon some subject for my pencil. The room, though door and windows were open, was oppressively hot, and I had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighborhood would be the deep end of the public swimming pool. When the idea came, I began to draw. So intent was I on my work that I left my lunch untouched, only stopping work when the clock of St. Jude's struck four. The final result for a hurried sketch was, I felt sure, the best thing I had done. It showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence. The man was fat, enormously fat. The flesh hung in rolls about his chin. It creased his huge, stumpy neck. He was clean-shaven, perhaps I should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven, and almost bald. He stood in the dock, his short, clumsy fingers clasping the rail, looking straight in front of him. The feeling that his expression conveyed was not so much one of horror as of utter, absolute collapse. There seemed nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh. I rolled up the sketch without quite knowing why, placed it in my pocket. Then, with the rare sense of happiness which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives, I left the house. I believe that I set out with the idea of calling upon Trenton, for I remember walking along Lytton Street and turning to the right along Gilchrist Road at the bottom of the hill where the men were at work on the new tram lines. From there onwards, I have only the vaguest recollection of where I went. The one thing of which I was fully conscious was the awful heat that came up from the dusty asphalt pavement as an almost palpable wave. I longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-colored cloud that hung low over the western sky. I must have walked five or six miles when a small boy roused me from my reverie by asking the time. It was twenty minutes to seven. 
When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard bordered by a strip of thirsty earth where there were flowers, purple stock, and scarlet geranium. Above the entrance was a board with the inscription, C.H.S. Atkinson, Monumental Mason, Worker in English and Italian Marbles. From the yard itself came a cherry whistle, the noise of hammer blows, and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter. A man was sitting with his back towards me, busy at work on a slab of curiously veined marble. He turned round as he heard my steps, and I stopped short. It was the man I had been drawing, whose portrait lay in my pocket. He sat there, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, which he wiped with a red silk handkerchief. But though the face was the same, the expression was absolutely different. He greeted me, smiling as if we were old friends, and shook my hand. I apologized for my intrusion. Everything is hot and glary outside, I said. This seems an oasis in the wilderness. I don't know about the oasis, he replied, but it certainly is hot. Hot as hell. Take a seat, sir. He pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work, and I sat down. That's a beautiful piece of stone you've got hold of, I said. He shook his head. In a way it is, he answered. The surface here is as fine as anything you could wish. But there's a big flaw at the back, though I don't expect you'd ever notice it. I could never make really a good job of a bit of marble like that. It would be all right in a summer like this. It wouldn't mind the blasted heat. But wait till the winter comes. There's nothing quite like the frost to find out the weak points in stone. Then what's it for? I asked. The man burst out laughing. You'll hardly believe me if I was to tell you it's for an exhibition, but it's the truth. Artists have exhibitions, so do grocers and butchers. We have them too. All the latest little things and headstones, you know. He went on to talk of marbles, which sort best withstood wind and rain, and which were easiest to work, then of his garden and a new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute, he would drop his tools, wipe his shining head, and curse the heat. I said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny, in meeting this man. I tried at first to persuade myself that I had seen him before, that his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory. But I knew that I was practicing little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. Mr. Atkinson finished his work, spat on the ground, and got up with a sigh of relief. There, what do you think of that, he said, with an air of evident pride. The inscription which I read for the first time was this, sacred to the memory of James Clarence Withencroft, born January 18th, 1860. He passed away very suddenly on August 20th, 1900. In the midst of life, we are in death. For some time I sat in silence, then a cold shudder ran down my spine. I asked him where he had seen the name. Oh, I didn't see it anywhere, replied Mr. Atkinson. I wanted some name, and I put down the first that came into my head. Why do you want to know? It's a strange coincidence, but it happens to be mine. 
he gave a long, low whistle. And the dates? I can only answer for one of them, and that's correct. It's a rum go, he said, but he knew less than I did. I told him of my morning's work. I took the sketch from my pocket and showed it to him. As he looked, the expression of his face altered until it became more and more like that of the man I had drawn. And it was only the day before yesterday, he said, that I told Maria there was no such thing as ghosts. Neither of us had seen a ghost, but I knew what he meant. You probably heard my name, I said. And you must have seen me somewhere and have forgotten it. Were you at Clacton-on-Sea last July? I had never been to Clacton in my life. We were silent for some time. We were both looking at the same thing, the two dates on the gravestone, and one was right. Come inside and have some supper, said Mr. Atkinson. His wife is a cheerful little woman with the flaky red cheeks of the country bread. Her husband introduced me as a friend of his who was an artist. The result was unfortunate, for after the sardines and watercress had been removed, she brought out a dory Bible, and I had to sit and express my admiration for nearly half an hour. I went outside and found Atkinson sitting on the gravestone, smoking. We resumed the conversation at the point we'd left off. You must excuse my asking, I said, but do you know of anything you've done which you could be put on trial? He shook his head. I'm not a bankrupt. The business is prosperous enough. Three years ago, I gave turkeys to some of the guardians at Christmas. That's all I can think of. And they were small ones too, he added, as an afterthought. He got up, fetched a can from the porch, and began to water the flowers. Twice a day, regular in the hot weather, he said. And then the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones. And ferns, good lord, they can never stand it. Where do you live? I told him my address. It would take an hour's quick walk to get back home. It's like this, he said. We'll look at the matter straight. If you go back home tonight, you take your chance of accidents. A cart may run over you, and there's always banana skins and orange peel to say nothing of falling ladders. He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness that would have been laughable six hours before. But I did not laugh. The best thing we can do, he continued, is for you to stay here till 12 o'clock. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside. To my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting now in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson has sent his wife to bed. He himself is busy sharpening some tools at a little oil stone, smoking one of my cigars the while. The air seems charged with thunder. I'm writing this at a shaky table before the open window. The leg is cracked, and Atkinson, who seems a handy man with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he is finished putting an edge on his chisel. It's after eleven now. I shall be gone in less than an hour. But the heat is stifling. It is enough to send a man mad. The Clock by W. F. Harvey 
I liked your description of the people at the pension. I can just picture that rather sinister Miss Cornelius with her toupee and clinking bangles. I don't wonder you felt frightened that night when you found her sleepwalking in the corridor. But after all, why shouldn't she sleepwalk? As to the movements of the furniture in the lounge on the Sunday, you are, I suppose, in an earthquake zone, though an earthquake seems too big an explanation for the ringing of that little handbell on the mantelpiece. It's rather as if our parlour maid, another new one, were to call a stray elephant to account for the teapot we found broken yesterday. You have at least, in Italy, escaped the eternal problem of maids. Yes, my dear, I most certainly believe you. I have never had experiences quite like yours, but your mention of Miss Cornelius has reminded me of something rather similar that happened nearly twenty years ago, soon after I left school. I was staying with my aunt in Hampstead. You remember her, I expect, or if not her, the poodle, monsieur, that she used to make perform such pathetic tricks. There was another guest, whom I had never met before, a Mrs. Caleb. She lived in Lewis and had been staying with my aunt for about a fortnight, recuperating after a series of domestic upheavals, which had culminated in her two servants leaving her at an hour's notice without any reason according to Mrs. Caleb, but I wondered. I had never seen the maids, I had seen Mrs. Caleb, and frankly, I disliked her. She left the same sort of impression on me as I gather your Miss Cornelius leaves on you, something strange and secretive, underground, if you can use the expression, rather than underhand, and I could feel in my body that she did not like me. It was summer, Joan Denton, you remember her, her husband was killed at Gallipoli, had suggested that I should go down to spend the day with her. Her people had rented a little cottage some three miles out of Lewis. We arranged a day. It was gloriously fine for a wonder, and I had planned to leave that stuffy old Hampstead house before the old ladies were astir. But Mrs. Caleb waylaid me in the hall, just as I was going out. I wonder, she said, I wonder if you could do me a small favor. If you do have any time to spare, Lewis, only if you do, would you be so kind as to call at my house? I left a little traveling clock there in the hurry of parting. If it's not in the drawing room, it will be my bedroom or in one of the maids' bedrooms. I know I lent it to the cook, who was a poor riser, but I can't remember if she returned it. Would it be too much to ask? The house has been locked up for 12 days, but everything is in order. I have the keys here. The large one is for the garden gate, the small one for the front door. I could only accept. And she proceeded to tell me how I could find Ashgrove House. You will feel quite like a burglar, she said, but mind, it's only if you have time to spare. As a matter of fact, I found myself glad of any excuse to kill time. Poor old Joan had taken suddenly ill in the night. They feared appendicitis. And though her people were very kind and asked me to stay to lunch, I could see that I should only be in the way and made Mrs. Caleb's commission an excuse for an early departure. I found Ashgrove without difficulty. It was a medium-sized red brick house standing by itself in a high-walled garden that bounded a narrow lane. A flagged path led from the gate to the front door, in front of which grew not an ash, but a monkey puzzle 
that must have made the rooms unnecessarily gloomy. The side door, as I expected, was locked. The dining room and drawing room lay on either side of the hall, and, as the windows of both were shuttered, I left the hall door open, and in the dim light looked round hurriedly for the clock, which, from what Mrs. Caleb had said, I hardly expected to find in either of the downstairs rooms. It was neither on table nor mantelpiece. The rest of the furniture was carefully covered over with white dust sheets, Then I went upstairs, but before doing so, I closed the front door. I did in fact feel rather like a burglar, and I thought that if anyone did happen to see the front door open, I might have difficulty in explaining things. Happily, the upstairs windows were not shuttered. I made a hurried search of the principal bedrooms. They had been left in apple pie order. Nothing was out of place, but there was no sign of Mrs. Caleb's clock. The impression that the house gave me, you know, the sense of personality that a house conveys, was neither pleasing nor displeasing, but it was stuffy, stuffy from the absence of fresh air, with an additional stuffiness added that seemed to come out from the hangings and quilts and antimacassars. The corridor, onto which the bedrooms I had examined opened, communicated with a smaller wing, an older part of the house, I imagined which contained a box room and the maid's sleeping quarters. The last door that I unlocked, I should say that the doors of all the rooms were locked and relocked by me after I had glanced inside them, contained the object of my search. Mrs. Caleb's travelling clock was on the mantelpiece, ticking away merrily. That was how I thought of it, at first. But then, for the first time, I realised that there was something wrong. The clock had no business to be ticking. The house had been shut up for 12 days. No one had come in to air it or to light fires. I remembered how Mrs. Caleb had told my aunt that as she left the keys with a neighbor, she was never sure who might get hold of them. And yet, the clock was going. I wondered if some vibration had set the mechanism in motion and pulled out my watch to see the time. It was five minutes to one. The clock on the mantelpiece said four minutes to the hour. Then, without quite knowing why, I shut the door onto the landing, locked myself in, and again looked round the room. Nothing was out of place. The only thing that might have called for a remark was that there appeared to be a slight indentation on the pillow and the bed. But the mattress was a feather mattress and You know how difficult it is to make them perfectly smooth. You won't need to be told that I gave a hurried glance under the bed. Do you remember your supposed burglar in number six at St. Ursula's? And then, and much more reluctantly, opened the doors of two horribly capacious cupboards, both happily empty, except for a framed text with its face to the wall. By this time, I really was frightened. The clock went ticking on. I had a horrible feeling that an alarm might go off at any moment, and the thought of being in that empty house was almost too much for me. However, I made an attempt to pull myself together. It might, after all, be a 14-day clock. If it were, then it would be almost run down. I could roughly find out how long the clock had been going by winding it up. 
I hesitated to put the matter to the test, but the uncertainty was too much for me. I took it out of its case and began to wind. I had scarcely turned the winding screw twice when it stopped. The clock clearly was not running down. The hands had been set in motion probably an hour or two before. I felt cold and faint, and going to the window threw up the sash letting in the sweet, live air of the garden. I knew now that the house was strange, horribly strange. Could someone be living in the house? Was someone else in the house now? I thought that I had been in all the rooms, but had I? I had only just opened the bathroom door, and I had certainly not opened any cupboards, except those in the room in which I was. Then, as I stood by the open window, wondering what I should do next, and feeling that I just couldn't go down that corridor into the darkened hall to fumble at the latch of the front door, with I don't know what behind me, I heard a noise. It was very faint at first, and seemed to be coming from the stairs. It was a curious noise, not the noise of anyone climbing up the stairs, but you will laugh if this letter reaches you by a morning post, of something hopping up the stairs, like a very big bird would hop. I heard it on the landing. It stopped. And then there was a curious scratching noise against one of the bedroom doors, the sort of noise you can make with the nail of your little finger scratching polished wood. Whatever it was, was coming slowly down the corridor, scratching at the doors as it went. I could stand it no longer. Nightmare pictures of locked doors opening filled my brain. I took up the clock, wrapped it in my Macintosh, and dropped it out of the window onto a flower bed. Then I managed to crawl out of the window, and getting a grip of the sill, successfully negotiated, as the journalist would say, a 12-foot drop. So much for a much-abused Jim at St. Ursula's. Picking up the Macintosh, I ran round to the front door and locked it. Then I felt I could breathe. But not until I was on the far side of the gate in the garden wall did I feel safe. And then I remembered that the bedroom window was open. What was I to do? Wild horses wouldn't have dragged me into that house again unaccompanied. I made up my mind to go to the police station and tell them everything. I should be laughed at, of course, and they might easily refuse to believe my story of Mrs. Caleb's commission. I had actually begun to walk down the lane in the direction of the town when I chanced to look back at the house. The window that I had left open was shut. No, my dear, I didn't see any face or anything dreadful like that. And of course it may have shut by itself. It was an ordinary sash window and you know they're often difficult to keep open. And the rest? Why, there's really nothing more to tell. I didn't even see Mrs. Caleb again. She had had some sort of fainting fit just before lunchtime, my aunt informed me on my return, and had had to go to bed. Next morning, I travelled down to Cornwall to join mother and the children. I thought I had forgotten all about it. But when three years later, Uncle Charles suggested giving me a travelling clock for a 21st birthday present, I was foolish enough to prefer the alternative that he offered, a collected edition of the works of Thomas Carlyle.
thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you did, please share with a friend.